Welcome to Piecemeal, the podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening and you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, author Lisa Whalen is here to share her eating disorder recovery story. We at the Emily Program so, so appreciate Lisa's writing we have for such a long time. She's been contributing to our blog for years and always writes about eating disorders and recovery in, in incredibly insightful and really illustrative ways. So we're especially thrilled for this opportunity to make a conversation of it today and to talk about Lisa's new book. Lisa's the author of Stable Weight, A Memoir of Horses, Hunger, and Hope. Her writing has also appeared in An Introvert in an Extrovert World, The Simpsons' Beloved Springfield, Introvert Deer, and Adana, among other publications. She has a PhD in post-secondary and adult education and an MA in creative and critical writing. She teaches writing and literature at North Hennepin Community College, where she was selected Minnesota College Faculty Association Educator of the Year in 2019. In her spare time, she's an equestrian and a volunteer for the Animal Humane Society. Thank you so much for being here today, Lisa. Well, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to get to talk to you today. Oh, we're so excited. I thought we could start by but really, you know, allowing our listeners to get to know you a little bit, just beyond your, your beautiful bio and, and learning a little bit about your personality. And we know there's so many factors that influence the development of eating disorders, and, and you give nuance to several in your, in your book, In Stable Weight. We won't give away too much about those. We'll get there in a little bit, but let's talk about personality. I'm sure some of our listeners can relate to yours. So tell us a little bit about your personality traits and your relationship to them. How have they impacted your life? and the eating disorder that you had for over 10 years? Yeah, well, I think one of the earliest signs of my personality that emerged that I didn't consciously really learn much about until I went into therapy at the EMILY program was high sensitivity. I am very sensitive in almost every aspect of the word, and especially emotionally, I think. I always felt like I had these antenna that picked up on like emotional current and tension and what was happening beneath the surface, which can be really, really helpful. I mean, it can be a great tool, but it can be a little overwhelming sometimes too. It can really lead to feeling overstimulated, especially before I understood what that was. Once I started to understand what it was and why I felt that way, it got easier to manage and to understand. But but yeah, it did make me very averse to tension and to conflict, which was you know, complicated because then I was such a people pleaser. I was always trying to please others and keep them happy and maintain emotional calm. And I tended to run away from conflict. And I've since learned that conflict doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's necessary and can be very healthy. But um, I think too, that fit in with being a perfectionist, right? Like for me, part of being a perfectionist was keeping people happy all the time. And making them feel good when they were around me and doing everything perfectly, which, you know, that's a a pretty unreasonable standard to set for yourself and to hold yourself to. So that really set me up to, I think, for the eating disorder, because then it was all about, well, then I have to appear perfect and I have to look perfect and I have to eat perfectly and behave perfectly. And that really set a foundation, I think, for a lot of the disordered eating that came along later. And then also just being an extreme introvert. I was very shy for all of my life, but that I think was separate from being an introvert too, which 
by its definition means that I just, I put a lot of energy into social interactions and I recharge my battery with quiet alone time. And so I always needed, or it felt like I needed more quiet alone time than most of the people around me, which made me feel like kind of a misfit sometimes. And I've since, I've been really lucky to get involved in some communities, even just through social media or online that understand and support and even can laugh appreciatively about introvert tendencies. So that's been really helpful, but that need to be alone and think about things and also just to have things sorted in my head before I said anything that introverts are so familiar with that you know, complicated the perfectionism and it complicated the sensitivity. So they all really played against each other in ways that can be very positive, but also if, if they're not understood, I think, and if they're not, if I didn't play to their strengths, they really set up that foundation for disordered eating and for just body dysmorphia too, seeing myself in a way that was really negative and, and often in ways that other people didn't see me. Absolutely. I mean, we, we know that those, those temperament traits, as, as well as some others like impulsivity, are often associated with eating disorders. The, the literature is, is really highlighting that for us as we look at the genetic and the neurobiological aspects of eating disorders, and, and some with, with more particular diagnoses than other. But we, we know that they can be harnessed for the good, right? That there are, there are lots of awesome aspects to the temperament traits or the personality traits that likely put people at risk for an eating disorder. And we know that if they get sort of focused in, in, in the right way or in a way that's more helpful, just amazing things can come. And, and, and you know, I imagine your incredible attention to detail is part of what makes your writing so vivid, for example. So there's lots of ways that those traits can be really focused to, to benefit us and, and, and to, to sort of join with them and sort of to feel like we're fighting them. So let's talk a little bit about, about writing. What role has writing had in your recovery and, and how has that changed over time for you? Writing for me has been key. I, I'd always liked to write and I didn't really even think I was particularly good at it until I was in college. And I actually enjoyed the process of writing essays and I had to do a lot of writing in college. And I got positive feedback from my instructors which built my confidence, which made me enjoy it more. So that piece of it spiraled a little bit. But, you know, I think a lot of writing goes hand in hand with being an introvert too. I like to sit and think and I like to churn things out and I like to solve problems in my head. And that perfectionist piece plays in there too, right? Like I like to have things perfect before they go out into the world. And on the page, I can play with something and perfect it as long as I want before I have to let anybody see it, or maybe I don't even have to let anybody see it. So that lets me indulge those parts of my personality in healthy ways. And it's actually really a benefit to have those aspects of perfectionism and, and um, introversion. They help my writing in, in a really positive way. But I didn't start writing much about my personal experience until my Emily program therapist suggested it. And at first it was kind of a scary idea, but she said, look, you don't even have to show me if you don't want to just, I just think it would be helpful for you. And I did end up giving it to her because I liked that sense of accountability and whether she read it or not. And I think she did because she would refer back to it later, but whether she read it or not, it, it helped me figure things out. And so 
even in between sessions, if I was having a bad week, or if I wasn't going to see her for a few days and I really needed to talk about something, writing it helped me figure it out in a way or do some like, it was almost like doing some pre-homework or pre-practice for my session so that by the time I got to my session, I could be more articulate about it and ask questions that would move my recovery process forward. And a lot of what I wrote during those sessions just sat in a folder for a long time and I didn't know that I'd ever actually do anything with it. but once I started writing about horses, years later, I actually went back to those and I took pieces out and rewrote them. And some of those pieces are, they're much revised and, you know, in different form and they're broken up in different pieces, but they're in the book. The, the roots of it are definitely in that writing I started doing when I was in therapy. And since then, I, I think writing still plays the same role. It helps me just figure things out. I find that if I'm just confused about something or I want to know more about it or I'm frustrated. Sometimes writing is just a problem solving process for me. And I like the challenge. A lot of writing for me is like putting together a puzzle, but it's, it's also safe too, right? Like it's not public performance. It's something I can do in my own private little space or in my own head. So it, it continues to play a therapeutic role, but the more I come along in my recovery process, the more I, I've come to like the more public aspect of it where I can have it published or have other people read it or talk to me about it. I've just, I've talked to a few classes of students who are interested in creative writing recently and that's been really fun. I've really come to enjoy that part of it more and more as I've gotten used to the, the earlier, more introverted and intense part of it. It's so interesting. I can I can just sort of imagine you being able to translate for students or or curious people this integration of your experience and writing and how to sort of get down on paper how you're feeling, what you're thinking. It's it can be for so many people a helpful tool in recovery to just get it out of your head and write it down. And you're right, just like your therapist said, you don't ever have to show it to anybody. It's just a process of of experiencing it and and kind of putting it out there that can really be reflective and help us to you know integrate a bit of what we're thinking what we're feeling how it makes sense to look back over time see what maybe didn't make sense as much then it makes sense more uh, and you you describe that a bit in the in the book around the sort of integration of 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 mind and emotions you have a, a quote that from the from the book writing was great for reintegrating mind and emotions but it left out a key component of eating disorder recovery, my body, and horses supplied that piece. And that quote really underscores the sort of multifaceted work of recovery, right? There's feelings, there's thoughts, there's your body, there's all the components of recovery supporting skills we need to develop and the pieces that, keep, that help us to feel whole. And for you, one of those things is related to horses, right? So tell us about horseback riding, why and, and when did you begin taking lessons and what lessons about your body have horses really taught you? Horses have been so great and that's all come as such a surprise. It wasn't something I planned um, and I certainly didn't approach it in terms of being a form of therapy, although there are equine therapy programs that exist that are really amazing for trauma and other things. But I, I have a, a friend that I work with, she was a mentor. She actually appears in the book too, um, Leanne Zayner. She was a, a mentor to me in graduate school in terms of my career. I now work with her at North Hennepin. 
And she had been a lifelong horse owner and she was self-taught and she did some horse training and she had said, yeah, you should come ride with me sometime. And so just for fun, one summer, I thought, you know, I'll just take a horse, a couple of lessons, just so I don't totally embarrass myself if I go riding with her. So I signed up one summer a few years ago and it, my third lesson, I had this light bulb moment. I was riding a horse named Angie and the third session at this, this farm where I take lessons, they always do something called groundwork because it's part of their philosophy for horse care and training and teaching riding. And so it's basically just interacting with the horse on the ground. You're not using any equipment, no lead rope or anything like that. And because horses, they essentially have like invisible antenna too. They're very sensitive to energy and emotion. And so all of their communication is through body language and energy. And they, they relate to each other and they determine hierarchy and relationships through giving and taking personal space. And so we had to learn how to make the horses move on the ground without actually touching them. You have to orient your body and you have to use intention to send your energy in a way that makes the move you want, move the way that you want them to move. And I remember standing there in front of this 1100 pound creature <laughs> who was very mysterious and wearing metal shoes and could kick and you know all of this. And I thought, you want me to do what now? <laughs> um, but once I learned how to do it, you know, and it didn't require any aggressiveness or violence, which, you know, I have horn and I couldn't have done anyway. It was so powerful because I had to suddenly, I had to take up space and I had to embody my physical space and I had to use my body as a, as a tool instead of a burden, the way I had looked at it before. And it was really cool. Like this horse and I were moving back and forth without any language, which had always been my crutch, right? Language and words are my my strength. And I had always depended on them when all else failed. And so I couldn't use my crutch and I had to use what I thought of as my kryptonite, my body, right? And so it was just such a powerful moment. It was like, wait a minute, I can take up space and I can ask this horse to move and she'll actually do it. Whereas before all my energy and thoughts and desires had gone toward wanting to shrink and disappear and take up as little space as possible and not be noticed. And that, you know, it was only my third lesson, but it was just this powerful moment. And I thought about it for a long time afterward. And then I was kind of hooked after that, you know, there was no going back. And I learned through that first series of lessons that horseback riding is something you can spend a lifetime learning. There's no end to the learning. And it, you know, it's something that you work at over a lifetime to improve. And so that, of course, appealed to the perfectionist in me, right? Like, and the, the educator, there's no end to the learning. There's no perfect. You're always working toward it, but it's never an, a standard because the horses aren't perfect and they don't care if they're perfect or not. They're not trying to be right. So I remember one of my early instructors telling me that, well, the horses aren't perfect and they don't, they're not trying to be perfect and they don't care. So that means you're not going to be perfect. So stop worrying about it. Stop trying to be perfect. And that was a powerful, a powerful lesson too. It strikes me too that, that as you're talking about lifelong learning and, and that perfectionism and, and the grounding, that every new horse you come in contact with is a new opportunity to learn, right? Just like every new relationship that we come into contact with, we might have a lot of skills from previous experience, 
and that experience is now new. And so how do we use those skills to develop that relationship? It's, it, it seems like there's a, a, an amazing amount of mentorship and learning that can come from really that experience as I hear you describe it. I can just imagine you standing there with like, I have to use my body to do what? How? In my, in my own self, you want me to do that? It's, it's beautiful. And you, you talk a lot in the, in the book about um, sort of several of the, of the horses. I mean, they're like the true characters of, of the book and the real mentors throughout your recovery. So um, pick, a, pick one, pick one of the, the amazing horses from the book and tell us about the lesson or the lessons that that particular horse taught you. Um, yeah, that was another pleasant surprise too, was I think going into this, I just thought, well, horses are horses, you just get on and you ride. But no, they, they each have their own very distinct personality and their physical bodies are very different. And so each one is very, it's a different experience with each horse. Penny is a, a really special horse. She and I actually, I call her my frenemy because we started out as sort of rivals or enemies and I thought she hated me but she's actually probably taught me the most of any of the horses. She's a really sassy horse and she's beautiful. And she's one of the smallest horses there, but she's also the most fierce. Like even the big male horses, they'll just kind of get out of her way when they see her coming, which, you know, even in that, that in itself is a powerful message. When I watch her with the herd, that's a, a powerful metaphor too, but she's, you know, she's, really good at what she does and she wants you to do it right and she wants you to be present and she is so she has been so good at teaching me to stay present and stay connected and listen to what my body is telling me because all of my signals and all of my communication and all of my relationship with a horse they all have to come through my body you know i can listen and i can look but especially when I'm on the horse, it's all coming through my body, through muscle and skin and all of that. So if I, if I space out for a minute, she's, she's mischievous and she'll take advantage and she'll push boundaries and she'll push buttons. And so I have to stay present and I have to stay engaged. And that was enlightening for me because I, and I talk in the book about intellect and like books and study and all of that was sort of my safe space there's no emotion involved and it can be very individual and I can be isolated in doing it. So it always felt very safe, but obviously you can't be happy and healthy, just isolating, right. And, and being with books all the time. And so Penny has been really good because I had to learn how to stay present. I was shocked in my early lessons for even the first couple of years at how often I would catch myself just being half present. And like, I would go on these little field trips in my brain while I was riding, even jumping fences. Like my instructor would say, you know, you did X, Y, Z. And I would be like, no, I didn't. And then I would play the jump back in my head and I'd go, oh yeah. Like, where was I as the fences, as the horse's feet were leaving the ground? Like my brain was off somewhere else. It just teaches me to, you know, and horses are always in the present. They don't, they don't live in the future or rethink the past. They're just always in the present. And so that lesson of staying present, staying engaged, not just letting Penny go willy-nilly, but having to enforce boundaries and negotiate because everything with her is a constant negotiation. She's, she's not one to just get, go along to get along. 
Um, and I had to be assertive, which was not easy for me. That's something I've really had to learn too. But all of that was so valuable to my recovery. I've been telling people that for me, riding horses felt like a therapy practicum. It's like I'd learned all this stuff while I was in therapy and the horses were forcing me to practice it over and over and under different settings and in different situations and circumstances. And so they've been a, a real gift for my recovery. I love that image of the horses being the therapy practicum. I think that that's just so, so well put. And I also, uh, you know, maybe Penny doesn't hang out and think about this. I like to imagine that Penny hangs out and thinks about what a, what a good job she's done with you to help you be present, that, that as you approach her, she's, you know, I have in my mind the story that Penny's like, oh, I'm keeping Lisa grounded. Let's, let's let me make sure she's paying attention and is with me all the time. Look what I've taught her. <laughs> I absolutely see Penny thinking that 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In my mind, that's what, that's her jam. She's like, oh, I got this. <laughs> but that's, that is fantastic. And, and it is such a great sort of, concept of this practicum of what you learn in in treatment right that you know is with mentorship and learning and and recovery you also recount in the book several really meaningful interactions with your eating disorder therapist and and then as you said before sort of deploying that and practicing them why was therapy important to your recovery say a little bit about that you know i was a little nervous at first and i think just this idea of revealing myself and and all the things that i I thought at the time were my failures, right, or my shortcomings to someone that I didn't know was really scary. But my therapist was so good at putting me at ease that I started feeling really comfortable with her pretty quickly. So therapy, it started off for me as a safe space. It was like this place I could go and I could talk about all the worst stuff about myself. And there was no judgment. She was only rooting for me. She only wanted me to succeed and to be ha happy and healthy. And she had the tools and the skills to help me do it. What I really respected too, is that she, she respected me and my, my expertise in areas where I had it too. And she, there's a moment I describe in the book where pretty early on, she said, you know, I want to, I want to lend you something. She said, I know you, you like books. And so she lent me these two books that set off a whole series of insights for me but just the fact that she knew right off the bat that i was a bookworm and that books were a safe space and a trustworthy resource for me and that as an academic i would find that believable and trustworthy and she actually gave me a, a copy of the university of minnesota study on starvation early on i don't you i'm sure you're familiar with that which was so helpful because when I first started, like I had only ever heard about anorexia and bulimia, and I knew that ne neither of those were me. Like I, I didn't fit those diagnoses. And so I never thought I had an eating disorder, but I knew something was wrong. I just, I knew something wasn't right. And so reading that study and seeing how the effects of mild to moderate starvation were affecting these people in such a short amount of time, I was like, oh yeah, I have that and I have that and I have that and that, you know? Just the fact that she was she uh, she seemed to get me from from the the get go, and then she was so trustworthy. That was the first step was just having someone accept and and not judge me, and you know see me see the good in me. I think without judging the bad, and then just being able to trust her expertise. She 
seem to know when to push and when to like, let me just, you know, I gotta, I need a little recovery time here. I, no pun intended, but like I'm a little raw. I, I, you know, I haven't quite gotten that yet. So I just need to like talk this week and not have that push. She was so wonderful in all those ways, but I think understanding was the first huge step, just figuring out what is this thing that I have and why do I have it? And how does it work? And knowing that a lot of other people had it too, that was all really key. And from then on, it was just, I, I think of them as these little nuggets, like every once in a while, I don't know if she even knew she was doing it, but she was giving me these little nuggets, like treating myself like my best friend instead of beating myself up all the time. And the difference in how I would react to a friend who had made a mistake versus how I reacted when I had a mistake. Those became just big pieces of my recovery. And in various ways, they worked themselves into my vocabulary and my daily life. And they're in the book too. So that therapy at the Emily program kicked off everything really. Yeah, that I, I could see that, that theme or that stream, sort of the lessons of recovery from your, from your treatment team, from your therapist, from the horses. I can see and imagine how they translated to areas of your life beyond eating, right? Like that example you just gave around, you know, would I treat my best friend this way if they did something? No, we wouldn't talk to our best friends the way we end up talking to ourselves. And so that lesson of whether it's around eating disorder recovery or whatever it is in life that doesn't go as we hoped, it sounds like you were able to translate some of those really key messages and, and lessons into areas beyond the eating disorder. Uh, other, other examples you have of, of ways that those lessons of recovery from, from your therapist, from the horses have translated to other areas of your life? Yeah, one of the biggest I think is, is in my career in teaching. As someone who was an introvert and was really shy and had all these body issues and wanted to be shrink, you know, shrink and not have people see me and all this, becoming a teacher seemed like the most ill-fitting possible choice. And I never anticipated going into teaching, but again, mentorship came into it. I was really lucky to have a mentor. She started out, I took a class from her actually, she's my professor. And she said, you know, I think you would really like teaching. I think you'd be good at it. And I was like, no, no, you don't know me. You don't, you know, you're no, no way. And I ended up through a series of odd coincidences. I ended up taking a job where I was a graduate student and I was basically kind of working for and with her tutoring students in college and their, on their essays. And she just would like gently float these opportunities out there for me. And I would be terrified and I would take them on and I would survive them, you know, and each time I survived, it got a little easier. And, and then I started to realize, you know what, I actually do kind of like this. Like once I get past the scary parts, I like it and it actually fits me pretty well. But I think one of the most important things that therapy and recovery has helped me with as a teacher is this idea of recovery being recursive. So when we teach in the teaching of writing and in any learning, really, the idea of something being recursive is it's something you, you learn and then you practice and then you build on it and you practice. And sometimes you have to go backward a little bit and like relearn or readjust before you go forward. And it's very cyclical. And the, one of the hardest things for me to accept about an eating disorder and about recovery was this idea that you're always in recovery. 
and you're learning to manage rather than you're sick one day and cured the next. Like the perfectionist in me did not at all like this idea that I'm never cured and it's never just fixed, you know, that this whole idea of learning to manage and live with just seems so messy and out of control. And I just, I did not like that at all. It took me a long time to accept it. But as a teacher, it's been so beneficial because I see it with my students, right? Like they'll learn something and then we go to the next essay, which is more challenging in terms of what it's asking them to do. And that thing they just learned, suddenly it's like, they forgot it, only they didn't really forget it. It's just that they're adding something more difficult to it. And so then it shows up again and they get it again, but it's this very back and forth cyclical process. And so when I get frustrated with myself or I have a relapse or something, I'm like, it doesn't feel like I failed and now I have to start over from square one anymore. It's like, oh no, yep, this is just part of the process. You see students do this every day. It's normal, it's learning, it's messy, but eventually over the long term, that curve bends toward progress. And so it, it's helped me in my teaching to be patient and to see steps moving forward. And even, you know, like one quote reg regression doesn't necessarily mean that a student's not learning or that they're not trying or whatever. So yeah, and even just in my own learning too, if I get frustrated with myself with horseback riding, I started as a middle-aged adult, which was not an ideal time to start a sport like horseback riding. And a lot of the people I ride with are younger. And so they learn and pick up on things faster and their bodies are more flexible and adaptable. And so I have to learn to be patient with myself and remember that it's all part of that process right and sometimes i do have a bad ride or i seem like i've forgotten everything i've learned but that doesn't mean it's going to stay that way so there's i think there are so many applications in life for what i learned in therapy and from recovery yeah it sounds it it sounds like you really have woven this kind of elegant tapestry of taking taking who you are and how it works and really finding ways to express that and experience that whether it's you know hanging out with Penny or writing something or with a student or wherever you are, that really allows you to be you and to, to be the, the, the wonder that, that you are. And I think that's a big part of recovery that people maybe don't quite realize or that we can continue to focus on and communicate around that recovery from an eating disorder is really about, at least in large part, learning how to take the sort of pieces that are you and how we're wired and how our temperament is wired and what works for us and, and sort of bend it towards the light and help it to work well and figure out the ways that those gifts may be a little bit troubling at some points along the way. And how do we manage that? Because that is, that ebb and flow is so, so much uh, the, the, what life is like and gives us. So those skills that you can learn whether it's how do I how do I get through this particular skill with this particular area of horsemanship or how do I get through this particular skill with this particular lunch or this particular person or this particular relationship and I, I think it's so illustrates so nicely that you know people often hear stories of other people in their experience of recovery and they they, they might think like, oh, I really identify with that piece, maybe the personality piece or your love of writing or animals or maybe something you've written on our, our blog because you 
done some amazing pieces. And that person might feel like, yeah, I can see a part of myself in, in that story, but that recovery part, that's never going to happen for me. That's just not possible for me. Maybe it is possible for you. That's great, Lisa. That's all fine and well, but that's not going to happen for me. What would you say to that person? I would say I can, I definitely understand that. And I, I was in that place. I remember being in that place for a long time where I couldn't even imagine myself telling a therapist, much less someone I knew, much less talking to strangers or being very open about having an eating disorder or having gone through therapy. Or, I mean, I, I remember even when, once I was in therapy, these moments where it just seemed like there was no light at the end of the tunnel, right? Like I'm just going to be fighting this my whole life and I'm not making any progress. But I, I would say I am a very stubborn person (laughs) and I had, I struggled with my eating disorder for a long time. So if I can do it, I think anybody can do it. And it's all about tiny, tiny steps. And that was a hard thing for me to get used to at first, but once you build some momentum, the next step gets easier and the next step gets easier. It, 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 re- it really is a process of momentum, I think. And it's all about tiny little steps and tiny little instances of, of progress. And I often tell people that early in my therapy, my therapist suggested that I might benefit from group therapy. And I was so shy and such an introvert. And I had so much shame that I was like, mm, no way. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> you know, and she didn't push it. She was really great about understanding. But I look back now and I think I wish I'd been more open-minded about that. Because since I've started talking about it with the book, I've found that like the more open about it I am, the less power it has over me. Um, it just doesn't have that same hold and it doesn't have that same claim on me and it's easier to just push it off and and not let it take control or to recognize when it's trying to take control you know it's it's true i i can i remember myself being in that position where i was like i i so admired speakers who would come in or even people who did group i would watch them go into the room for group therapy and think god how i i can't even how do they do that i can't imagine but it's true. Like if you, if you keep at it and you acknowledge those tiny little steps and build on them, it it can happen for anybody. Like I said, I'm incredibly stubborn. And if I can do it and if I can change, I think anybody can change. That's fantastic. Thank you. So, so well said. I, I was thinking as you were talking, sort of painting this picture in my mind of, of really imagining, right. And your writing is so imaginative and, and, paints a picture for people that it really does maybe hearing somebody else's recovery might not feel like we can do it for us. And maybe if they can imagine it, we can, we can really see ourselves in that. So I, I really appreciate you sharing your perspective and hopefully painting that picture and, and really illustrating that story for somebody else to maybe attach to. Where can people learn more about you and find the book? Where can they find Stable Wave? Yeah, it's available from my publisher's website. The publisher is Hopewell Publications, and their website is hopepubs.com, so H-O-P-E-P-U-B-S.com, or it's also available on Amazon. And it's just Stable Weight, A Memoir of Hunger, Horses, and Hope. And I do have a website. The URL is kind of 
unwieldy, but if you just, if you just Google Lisa Whalen, Minnesota or Lisa Whalen stable weight, my website will pop up. Awesome. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for spending some time with us today, for sharing your story, for sharing uh, your, your work and your words and your thoughts. It's been really wonderful to talk with you. Oh, I've so enjoyed it. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've, I've had a great time. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, please visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at EMILY program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.